0: We have have discovered, well, we always knew that some things are not perfect in the way that we develop our software. And in retrospect, you have the opportunity to take a step back and say, hey, I should really have prioritized that a year ago, whenever I first discover I have this scale issue or business logic issue but you never want to be in the reactive mode. You don't want to cause burnout to your team member. You want to be, to have an as predictable as a possible deployment. My name is Barack Shoster, CTO and co-founder of BridgeCrew, now part of Palo Alto Networks.
1: This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today how Barack Shostor built a solid way to streamline cloud security and policy enforcement. All this and more on Code Story. Barack Shostor claims he's generally a boring guy, What he does professionally, he loves to do in his free time, which is coding. He contributes regularly to open source projects, but outside of this, he loves sea kayaking and equates the ups and downs of the sport to software engineering. He is married with two sons, both under five years old. They're into building puzzles together and playing ball as they are sporty kids. Barack and his wife like to visit restaurants, watch movies together, and thoroughly enjoy going to rock concerts. His favorite rock band is Guns N' Roses, but his favorite concerts have been U2 and Imagine Dragons. In February of 2019, Barack and his co-founders started their company's journey by asking the question, how do you secure your cloud environment? What they found was their experience with fixing these environments were similar to the market and no solution had been created for streamlining this process, much less optimizing and automating it where possible. This is the creation story of BridgeCrew.
0: So BridgeCrew is a, a productivity tool for DevOps engineers. Uh, it helps to secure any code that a DevOps or SRE platform engineering team would write, would produce. Uh, so we scan essentially infrastructure as code manifests, GitHub workflows, open source packages, anything that includes a commit from the DevOps engineer, and we scan it for a misconfig. Uh, For example, if you have defined in Terraform, which is one of the infrastructure as code frameworks, a misconfigured S3 bucket, for example, you created a bucket that is public or unencrypted, or you forgot to add logging, versioning, or any other parameters that are considered the best practice to this bucket, BridgeCoup will identify the issue in that code and we'll suggest a fix to fix that code. Bridgecrew acts as a bot on top of your pull requests at GitHub, and it augments your capabilities to write code by suggesting you to add a few additional commits to have a compliant code with that best practices. The company was founded at February, 2019 uh, by myself. I'm, I was the CTO. Uh, Idan Tendler, who was the CEO, and Guy Eisenkot. Uh, who's the VP of product. And we started our journey by talking with customers. At the beginning, CISOs, we asked CISOs, Chief Information Security Officers, how do you secure your cloud environment in, back then, the beginning of the cloud native era? And they told us, we have a bunch of scanners that scans the runtime environment, scans what configurations exist, and we open JIRA tickets. As an SRE, I had the same experience of having a Backlog full of JIRA tickets that I had to remediate manually. I interviewed other SREs, which became customers and community members later on. How do they solve most of their JIRA tickets that are related to cloud configuration? And they told me that they're doing pull requests uh, and code reviews through their teammates. And in comments, they're adding some context to whether this bucket should be public or not. And when they're reviewing code, they're actually asking people to do code changes to make the bucket private, public, encrypted. So our initial product was, instead of scanning your cloud environment or only your cloud environment, let's alongside that also scan your code and automate that workflow of code review by creating a set of best practices within that bot that will replace some of the manual work of the other teammates that did code review for those infrastructure as code templates. We started with creating an open source project called Chekhov, which was released at November 2019. And on the first month, it had only 50 rules and one supported infrastructure as code framework named Terraform, which is the most popular to date. On the first month, we got 60,000 downloads. And after two months we had 300k downloads and and nowadays we have 7 million downloads and 11 supported infrastructure as code frameworks
1: Tell me about the MVP so that first product you built how long did it take you to build and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life
0: The real MVP was uh, a lot of manual work like a lot of startup founders we started with asking people from our network uh, how do they do cloud security? And they told us in, in code. And then we requested access to that code and we started manually reviewing their pull requests. And when we found a repetitive pattern where we can actually scan the code and give results that are good insights to our customers. At, at the beginning, we gave PDF reports, which was not that different from a Jira ticket. As time went, we developed a GitHub application that scans the code and knows to produce a comment with a suggestion of code fix. That was the real MVP. It didn't support large-scale environments. It didn't support all infrastructure as code frameworks. It supported only one, and it had only 50 built-in rules. Nowadays, obviously, it's a more mature product with over 1,000 rules, 11 languages, um, and supports very large scale. But the MVP was very manual and, and simple. And in the, in the MVP, we supported uh, a daily scan. You could scan your code once a day. And over time, we understood that the developer workflow is changing on every commit, and we introduced more and more interfaces to interact with our bot from VS Code extension in a way that while you write code, our extension will tell you, hey, you should write the code a bit differently, kind of a linter that can fix your code. We had a, an integration to CI systems like Jenkins, GitHub Actions, Circus CI, then to CD systems like admission controllers and to the pull request with a bot that gives you automatic commits of code fixes and fail builds if they are not compliant with some best practices. And at the end of it, you have drift detection and the ability to understand if you have any drift between your code and cloud environment. And you have the ability to see your entire supply chain of code artifacts, infrastructures, code, and workflows, and understand what are the security impact of every change that you've done. And more importantly, how to fix them using an algorithm that will identify what's the best code fix
1: so with an MVP, you've got to make certain decisions and trade-offs, and you're, you're alluding to kind of the high points of some of those trade-offs you made in you know, the early days. But I want to give space for, for kind of some full thought there. So tell me about those decisions and trade-offs around, you know, feature limitation or technical debt or the manual processes you talked about, and how you coped with those decisions.
0: I think our strategy at the beginning was not to design for scale. <laughs> Even though a lot of CTOs would recommend you design to design for scale at the first place, we decided not to. Uh, we stick to serverless framework as our backbone. Most of the scale issues, of the compute scale issues were resolved by design, by choosing that. And the main thing that we decided to invest in, in our core capabilities, was the ability to deploy fast to our production. So we started with a very mature CI/CD pipeline of our own that enables us to push to production environment nine, 10, 11 times a day, and even though the software was not mature, the software did not, was not designed to support large scale, it was not support, designed to support multiple infrastructure as code frameworks or more than a daily scan. Since the delivery workflow of BridgeCrew was designed in a mature manner, we could say, hey, if a customer requirement comes in and this customer wants us to have a feature which says support a larger scale or support more than one IAC framework, It will take us no more than one day of work to deploy that feature. And it makes your decision process very, very clean because you don't have the burden of, hey, how much would it cost me to release it? The cost of release is zero. Now you only have the cost of development of a feature and it becomes a prioritization, a pure prioritization play. You're not taking into account the release mechanism. So I forgot to mention BridgeCrew is a fully SaaS platform. It works in a self-serve model. So let's say that a customer has identified a bug or requested a feature. It's a matter of a simple decision whether to add it to the to the Jira board, to the sprint, and implement or not. If we received a Pager Duty alert of "Hey, we are not supporting the scale that you anticipated," it was only a configuration change in Serverless or Terraform for our backbone to support that scale. So two investments were made. One is having a very mature monitoring system and connected it to our pager duty schedule, and two was the ability to fix production and all dev environments quite fast.
1: So then, from that point, you mentioned the prioritization, uh, and I'm kind of curious, you know, how you progressed the product from that point. And in the in the vein of prioritization, how did you build your roadmap and figure out okay? This is the next most important thing to build.
0: We were lucky enough to own and maintain a very popular open source. So we had a lot of signal of feature requirements and bug discoveries. We had these signals both from the sales process, from prospects, from existing customers and from open source community users. And we always prioritized obviously paying customers, but also prioritize repetitive asks from those different channels of asks. What we try to do always is to continuously map which channel, which community, open source community, prospects or customers will benefit from us adding a specific feature. And we didn't try to prioritize Fortune 100 companies over smaller startups we tried to prioritize a repetitive use case over how big is the logo the main reason for that is because large enterprises might have more mature enterprise features requirements they might have more complicated use cases to scan their their code but companies who are cloud native who were born in the cloud have more of a common stack like it's mainly kubernetes or it's mainly serverless and terraform as a product that delivers to developers. If you build a product that scans the common stack of a developer, you have much bigger addressable market. And if this market is early adopters, such as startups or cloud native companies, you will have a higher adoption at the beginning.
1: Well, let's switch to team then. So how did you build your team? And what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you?
0: so when i was lucky enough to work with most of them on previous jobs i got to know my co-founders on our previous startup uh, named fordskate it was a user an entity behavior analytics startup in the security space that was acquired by rsa back then it was an employee and idan was the founder guy Eisenkot, our vp product was the the main product at that startup so i had years of experience working with them As for the other team members, I was also very lucky to work with most of them previously at my job prior to Fortscale, which was the Israeli Defense Force. We all worked in the IT department of the Israeli Defense Force. And what I looked in, in the team members was I look for people who are very independent and they are also team players. So they can either make a good progress by their own or they have high skills of communications with their team members, and they're good people to work with. Pleasant people that you like to work with when you come to your day-to-day job.
1: Well, let's flip to scalability then. So did you build this to scale efficiently from day one? And I kinda know where you're gonna go given your mention of the manual processes, but uh, did you scale it efficiently from day one? Or are you fighting this as you've grown?
0: So we were lucky enough to be a cloud-native company by ourselves, so we had a very modern stack using mainly serverless functions, so AWS Lambda is our main backbone. And the scale of compute was really easy to resolve. It is just changing the auto-scaling or concurrency configuration of Lambdas. The other scale challenges that we had was Lambda functions are not, since they can almost infinitely scale, you get to the next bottleneck, which is not compute, it's your database. And back then, AWS did not have a good solution for working with both Lambdas and RDS or SQL servers. So we built our own RDS proxy to maintain a living connection to our database. And over time, we migrated to RDS proxy, the product that AWS have released, So we will have no scale issues between Lambda functions and and database concurrency of connections. The short answer and the honest answer is we were not designed to scale at the beginning. We just were lucky enough to use a framework that is designed to scale. At the beginning, we supported only very small customers and we had a lot of edge cases that we had to tune and our monitoring framework really helped us to understand what are the bottlenecks? Where should we tune it? Where should we add resources to our cloud environment? And where should we invest in load balancing logic or distribution logic between the different tenants
1: of the application? Was there a tipping point where you decided, okay, now we need to move on making some of these, you know, scaling changes, which, you know, fortunately you were already using a framework and the tooling to be able to do that. Was there a tipping point?
0: I think it was a continuous change since we used Terraform and serverless and we we never used any manual steps to deploy our, to our production environment. Everything was described in infrastructure code. So an architecture change, which is something you do to support larger scale, for us was just like refactoring a bunch of classes. Those classes were um, Terraform modules. But it's just... Just like the effortless refactoring of moving one class from one directory to another, it was similar to that, our journey to scale our application. It's just, let's add more Terraform code blocks and the scale issue will be resolved. I would say that every sprint, every two weeks, we had some change to our infrastructure to support larger scale by modifying our infrastructure code.
1: Well, as you step out on the balcony, and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of?
0: I think that the thing that I'm most proud of is our open source solution that uh, became the standard or the most popular tool for infrastructure as code security. Um, It has millions of downloads and hundreds of open source contributors who are not company employees. I feel like we made a real impact on the infrastructure as code security space and the cloud security space. And I can judge it either by the willingness of people to contribute code back. It's it's under Apache 2 license, so it's easy to contribute and to adopt. And also by the popularity of usage of it. So that's what I'm most proud of. The second thing that I'm most proud of is how the team have matured and grown. And already some of the people who were The first employees are now managers in the company um, and we somehow got to keep our amazing culture that we've built. Good people are still coming in and there is almost zero churn. So it's, it's really fun to see all of the good people that are progressing in the organization and all of the good people who are joining.
1: Well, let's flip the script a little bit. So tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it.
0: So like, like every startup, every SaaS company, we had, we had a downtime. The thing that we were doing really good was reacting to it really fast and giving the system back up to our customers. And the thing that it took us time to resolve was uh, the retrospective part of it. We, had, we have discovered, well, we always knew that some things are not perfect in the way that we develop our software. And in retrospect, you have the opportunity to take a step back and say, hey, I should really have prioritized that a year ago, whenever I first discover I have this scale issue or business logic issue. But you never want to be in the reactive mode. You You don't want to cause burnout to your team member. You want to be to have and as predictable as a possible deployment. And if not, you want to have a very easy and trustworthy process to roll back a change. So to make a long story short, we had a production issue that was really hard to roll back um, and it required uh, people to stay up at night. Um, but the resolution that we had later on for future updates is always to have the ability to roll back a production change.
1: Well, tell me what the future looks like for the product and for your team.
0: Team is growing. Uh, when we were acquired, we were 39 people. That was a year ago. We are now more than 70, uh, people, um, and counting and also the open source community members have more than doubled and the open source uh, usage is seven times higher than it was when we were acquired so everything is growing um in matters of good people in the team we are uh, by the way all all remote companies so we have engineering engineer in germany um developer advocates team in UK, um, solution architects in UK and US, and engineers in the US and Israel, um, and product managers in both US and Israel. So we're all abroad, um, all across. And our next steps in the product is one, always be the leader in infrastructure as code security. Two, start handling every other piece of the supply chain of your software. So from scanning only infrastructure's code, we have evolved to also scan open source vulnerabilities and also CIs, CD's configuration. And essentially our goal is to, to map and secure and fix every part of your supply chain knowing what's the best place to fix and what's the best fix out there for your code at any step of your pipeline from ID to CI CD version control systems mission controllers and runtime.
1: Barack I'm curious you know how does bridge crew contribute to improving security around the supply chain it's obviously an important topic nowadays with a lot of the supply chain issues going on and um, you know things out there that you read the news how does Bridge Crew really contribute to you know positively affecting supply chain security?
0: I think that first it's important to mention how do we define supply chain of software. Um, supply chain of software is all of the different building blocks that we lead you as a developer team leader, to bring a product from inception, from the deck phase to a production environment. And that supply chain includes the building blocks of open source packages, infrastructure as code, DevOps pipeline, version control system configuration, Docker images, and the list goes on. Our software today is built from so many pieces of puzzle that we really need to invest in every piece of that puzzle to have a complete picture of a product and attackers today can utilize different parts of our supply chain to create a a malfunction function in our product so if our product was a car some of our suppliers were suppliers of wheels of engines of electronics and each one of those suppliers could have created a very bad driving experience for me as a user could have been also a security security experience as a driver or a passenger and in software it's kind of similar i can have a misconfigured pipeline that um, does not have a secret storage for example so my secrets to production environment who gave the pipeline admin access can actually uh, leak into unwanted places to Uh, bad actors and also my pipelines can have um, bad defaults in the infrastructure as code or bad packages being used in the pipeline and we actually have seen um, attacks like that in the past year for example we CodeCov was a famous breach of 2020 uh, where every code repository out there that used CodeCov which is a popular tool for code coverage um, and did not have a signed artifact of CodeCov, possibly had a malicious library injected into their pipeline and leaking some of the codes or secrets that exist in that pipeline. CodeCov have reacted fast and have resolved and patched uh, this issue, but it made all of us that security practitioners, DevOps practitioners, ask if our pipelines architecture is defined correctly. Um, Is the networking defined correctly? Is the packages defined correctly? And the pipeline configurations. And what Bridge Crew is introducing these days is a new way to explore every asset of your supply chain um, in a visualization that allows you to research what are the security risks and misconfiguration in every step of the way.
1: Let's switch to you, Barack. Who influences the way that you work? Name a CEO, a CTO, an architect, really any person that you look up to and why.
0: There are people who have worked with. Uh, the first one was the f- first architect of Fortskin, the previous startup that I used to work with. His name is uh, Gash Hazan. And he really taught me how to learn better. Um, So I thought that I knew a lot about software engineering. And he really taught me of if there is something that I don't know, or Google doesn't know, what's the best way to approach the research of a new capability that is not documented yet how to test my code better and how to gradually deploy a software in small chunks that are that, that can be easily consumed by other team members and i think that the second uh, architect that most influenced my thought process is martin fowler I've never met him in life, but he has an amazing blog and amazing, amazing set of webinars that I really recommend as a, as a place to start reading about software architecture and the different advantages of different types of architectures.
1: Well, we talked about a mistake. But a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently, or where would you consider taking a different approach?
0: I think I think that what we what we didn't know at the beginning was how how aggressive would be the open source adoption of the tool that we've developed, um, and it grew really really fast and we haven't anticipated it and we haven't we could have done better work in leading those initial community users to contribute more code, we could have done better work in making some of the contribution workflows more accessible than the documentation and we also could have done better work in deciding what should be a commercial feature and what should be open source Um, and and better work at communicating that to our community so I think that having maybe having a public roadmap that uh, would explain to our community users what we expect to be contributed and what uh, we're working on ourselves and uh, what is going to be a paid tier only um, would have created a more transparent environment with our community. I think that we are doing that work today, it's important to say, but I think that in the beginning we haven't we haven't uh, done that good enough and uh, maybe we had an even bigger community if we've done it from the beginning.
1: Well, last question, Barack. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit?
0: Always ask your customers what to do first. One of the key things that helped us in our success was before we wrote the first lines of code of, of BridgeCrew, we interviewed 120 SREs, security practitioners, DevOps engineers. Maybe 120 is too much. Yeah, like a, My advice to a entre- new entrepreneur would be stop at 30 uh, to get a validation. But we really hammered down the validation process and we always... Have continuously done it even after we had an initial product, and MVP, and after we were also acquired. We um, really um, invest in our interview process, our customer interview process, uh, to learn what are the pains that we're answering with our product, what are the other pains that we haven't resolved yet, um, and how's the day in the life of the persona that is our user, looks like and how can we make that day easier so if you're building a developer tool or a developer productivity tool or security tool you should really ask your persona um, what is the thing that you are going to solve really solving a real problem in their life it can be based on your own day-to-day activity but it's even better if it's also validated with your potential customers.
1: That's fantastic advice. Well, Brock, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of bridge crew.
0: Thank you for having me. It was great being here. Noah.
1: And this concludes another chapter of code story. Code story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice support the show on patreon.com/codestory for just 5 to 10 bucks a month and when you get a chance leave us a review both things help us out tremendously and thanks again for listening